0: Good day, everyone. I've got a simple message for you. If you are not profitable at $100,000, you are most definitely not going to be profitable at $10 million. Being profitable first is the key to any successful construction business. My name is Brian Kaplan, and I'm from Construction Consulting, and you're listening to the Tools of the Trade podcast.
1: Welcome, 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 Welcome. please welcome to another episode of the Tools of the Trade Podcast, your number one construction industry resource. Hear conversations with industry professionals to get the tools, stories, and advice that you need to set your career on fire. You're now streaming the Tools of the Trade Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode number 26 of the Tools of the Trade Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Toop, and I created this podcast to not only help change the optics of the construction industry, but to provide apprentices, journeypersons, small business owners, executives, and everyone in between with the valuable resources that they can use to accelerate their professional growth and leadership. And yes, if you're listening, that means you. i Do this by interviewing the brightest minds that I can find in the construction world or in roles that support our field to extract the stories that you want and the tools that you need to set your career on fire. If you own a construction company and you're looking for a ton of advice and tactics and resources that you can use to improve your business and your bottom line, I suggest that you pause this and you go get a notepad because this episode is packed. Today's guest is a veteran in the residential construction industry named Brian Kaplan. Brian believes that life is too short to learn from your own mistakes, which is why he left the field and started his consulting company, which is called Construction Consulting. No joke, it's actually called Construction Consulting, which due to the availability of such a business name, to me, is really a testament to the lack of resources we have in our industry. When Brian and I first started thinking about doing an episode together, we wanted to bring some serious value to the listeners, to you guys, not just a here's what I do and, you know, go check out my website, which I highly encourage you do, which I will link to at toolspodcast.com, but stuff that you can actually pull out, think about and use right away in your business to accelerate it and to grow. So here's a quick summary of what's about to come. If you're planning on starting a construction company in the near future, what systems should you have in place from day one to establish a solid footing? What is internal digestion and how can it cripple your business? Your mindset as an owner when it comes to revenue versus profit, a masterclass on understanding your numbers and defining gross profit versus net profit, what overhead really is and how you can charge for it and a controversial conversation around three quarters of the way through this episode around estimates. Should you charge for them or not? Also, Brian has been kind enough to give me his checklist for the critical path that you need to follow when building a home, which is available for download at toolspodcast.com backslash construction consulting. To get in touch with Brian, follow him on Instagram, where he provides a ton of awesome resources there. He's got a great page and he has a lot of webinars and roundtables going on. So I highly suggest you check that out. And that is constructionconsulting.co on Instagram. And also his website is the same, constructionconsulting.co. There are takeaways right up to the last minute of this episode. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming my guest, Brian Kaplan. Well, I'm sitting here amongst all the pandemic and and craziness that's going on right now. I'm not sure what the state of COVID is going to be by the time this episode comes out. But if you've had a chance to listen to my prior episode, you may have already heard of this gentleman by the name of Brian Kaplan from Construction Consulting. And it is my goal here to really dig for as many actionable tools as we can uh, with your expertise so that people can walk away with stuff that they can implement into their business right away. So Brian, thank you so much for joining me on Tools of the Trade. Awesome. Colin, thanks so much for uh, having me. I really appreciate it. Of course, I am, I'm looking forward to this one. I can't believe that you managed to snake the name construction consulting and I believe constructionconsulting.com that those seem like two things that would have been uh, bought up already, but you, you managed to get your way in there with, with a brilliant name for your company. And I know that you do a lot of great work with residential contractors. And the place that I wanted to start here today was just to get your background story. So people have some context as to what you do and where you came from. And I know that you've, had a decorated career in, in residential construction as a carpenter. So how about you just start off by telling us what exactly your role is, what title you give yourself, if any, and what a day in the life of Brian looks like.
0: For sure, for sure. So yeah, the a, a day in the life of Brian right now as a consultant is you know, kind of mirrors a little bit of construction, to be honest with you. I I spent a lot of time in the renovations sector and we always used to say that the reason we were in it was because no two days were alike. And, you know, despite the routines that I have and all of that, the reality is I work with people of all different business sizes across both uh, Canada and the U.S. So, you know, really in a lot of senses, no two calls are really alike. So it's kind of an exciting time for me. You know, Construction Consulting is a company that I started And I would give myself the title of founder or principal or chief consultant. I mean, there's really only me. So uh, at this point, it's kind of uh,
1: one man wearing very, very many hats as most companies experience. And I'm sure we're going we're to get into that and how to how to mitigate a lot of that stuff. But uh, Brian, how about you tell us how you got into construction in the first place? I like asking this question because there's always two schools of thought. There's some people that just decided they, they weren't good at school or didn't want to go to post-secondary school in a formal way and get a degree. And then there's those of us that were really passionate about construction and others that were forced into it. So I'd like to hear what life was like for you after high school and how you found your way into construction. So lead me down that path, uh, your educational journey.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you know, the truth is that my building journey started at a very, very young age. I was just fascinated with Lego and it was the kind of thing I would just build these monstrosities and I just get my mom to buy me more and more Lego and I just build these huge houses. But it's funny it was it was a part of me through my childhood and all of that and my teenage years and then i ended up going to uh to university um actually out where you know where you're from out your way but i went to school in victoria british columbia and i went there for kinesiology for sports medicine thought i was going to be either an athletic therapist or you know a sports med doctor for say a professional sports team And I realized when I came back from school to Toronto that I really just loved playing sports and I didn't really want to help other people play sports. And so, you know, that's kind of really where I was kind of looking for something to, you know, kind of do with my life. And my girlfriend, who's now my wife of uh, 15 plus years, had bought a house. And this was one that, you know, had about a six inch drop from, you know, a 10 foot wide room. There was six inches of drop from side to side. And needless to say, it needed a lot of work. And my father-in-law just kind of gave me some confidence to start trying to do this. And I realized that I was kind of naturally good at it. And, you know, that was really how I, as you said, some of us have a passion for it, know where I was going to do it. Someone was go to, you know, school for it. For me, I just, I'm in that camp of people that fell into the business kind of thing. And I didn't know any better.
1: And you started, so you started in construction or getting a taste of construction there. And then did you, you went to trade school for carpentry? Is that how it uh, continued?
0: Yeah. So um, basically I, you know, so, so little known fact is that I actually challenged the carpentry exam after many years in the field. I never actually went through the formal education process. In can or in in Ontario. So I, I went in there, you know, I just, at that point, I just known, I knew so much that it was, it seemed, you know, redundant for me. I'd studied the same textbook that they use, you know, through the Ontario Ministry of Skills and Training, what they teach at, say, George Brown College or um, any of the institutions that are, you know, subscribers to the apprenticeship program. And so yeah, I mean it it really it started for me in like nineteen ninety-nine. That's kind of when I started, you know, kind of working in the business outside of the house that I was renovating. I worked as a bricky laborer, as we call it and that's kind of running stacks of bricks to the scaffold for the bricklayers. And for some very angry old men that would just yell and scream, I cannot run these bricks fast enough for them, of course. So, and then, you know, a couple of years into the trades, I decided to go into business for myself. You know, my wife and I can look back now and kind of laugh at it because it was, you know, definitely, I got a few degrees in the school of hard knocks and uh, probably even got my master's and my doctorate in it as well. So did that for about seven or eight years we were buying houses and kind of fixing them up slowly then selling them and we got to a point where we kind of had two houses at the same time that we were both renovating and liquidity became an issue and a good friend of mine had called me up and said hey we're looking for site supers i think you'd be a great fit and so second part of my journey in the construction industry was really working for several really high-end residential renovation firms in Toronto. And I kind of worked as a site super, like a lead, a site super project manager. And then, you know, my last position was as a general manager of a a very prominent uh, residential construction company in
1: Toronto here. What do you love most about residential construction? Did you ever get a taste of the commercial side or has it always been residential?
0: Yeah, I've done some commercial projects. Um, you know, the difference with residential and and this will be no surprise to anybody listening to this is that, you know, we always say we're only as good as the people around us and it's a very relationship-based business, right? And and that's really what it comes down to is, you know, not to get, you know, cliché or anything like that, but, you know, kind of you know, being able to change somebody's life is what's really powerful. And as a builder, when you get to you know, move a family into their home or that, you know, they renovate their home or you you solve the problem for them. Um, there's just an immense amount of joy that comes to that. You know, there's a satisfaction as a carpenter. I can tell you that, you know, we'd go and frame something and coming down off the scaffold or out of the house and, you know, standing on uh, a a lunch or, or a break and looking at the product that you've built, that sense of accomplishment was really, really powerful. And in the commercial side, you know, don't get me wrong, there's fantastic people in that side, but it's a very different dynamic, right? There's, you're doing it for businesses. And so there's, you know, people are moving in only to sell products or to sell a service or whatever it is. And there's open dates as opposed to occupancy dates. So there's a, you know, it's a very different type of um, uh, feel, I would say.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think you hit it on the head there. And that's something that a lot of people have said, and that's uh, another reason why I love the industry. But I never thought of it that way. When when you're building something for somebody to live in, when you're putting forth all of that effort to build their nest egg, and they look back and see that you were able to, you know, transform that vision into their reality, and they get to live in that space the way that they wanted it built, that, that is extremely powerful because you're, you're influencing that person directly. You know, if if you're on a construction job, like a commercial construction job, you may not be able to talk to the the office staff that were in that tower you built or the people that are selling those goods it 's just kind of you 're right it 's a bit more transactional than it is personal I mean that 's dependent on on the business itself, but for sure residential i could I could see that definitely yeah cool so so you 've made your way through multiple companies and you 've had a business in the past and you you 've garnered all this experience from being in the industry for so long. And I would imagine that there was a tipping point where you looked in the mirror and said to yourself, I would rather help businesses than be performing in the business. Because w- <laughs> I'm doing a contrast in my mind now. When you were going in for sports medicine, you'd rather play the sport than assist the sports teams. But now you're assisting the construction companies versus building. So it's almost like you've, you've done a complete 180. So was there a <laughs> point in time? Uh, walk me through your decision-making process with becoming a consultant.
0: Yeah, that's hey, that's a very astute uh, observation. I hadn't really put that together, but that's uh, it is ironic. <laughs> I really, really have done that one eighty. So, you know, it was kind of one of those things that as you get older in life and you get more and more experience. And one thing I'll always say is there's never a substitute for experience. You start to see so many different things, and those experiences shape you as an individual. And the majority of the companies that I've worked in when I would sort of get into them and I would see how they were operating, I kind of always looked at things as a very process-based person. Like as a kid, you know, the meat, the potatoes, the peas, and the corn never touched each other on the plate. That's always, everything's always had a box for me kind of thing. And that's kind of how I look at life and much to, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, I'll be honest. But, you know, when I got into these companies, you know, tended to be that I was constantly looking at improving processes and systems and all of that. And, I kind of got to the point of, you know, working as a general manager, the only next step up in a smaller residential building company is to start your own company. I mean, there's no real position above you. So, um, ultimately I didn't want to do that again. I had spent 20, 20, 21 years or so in the industry. And, you know, I've just, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I kind of decided that I've spent all that time on the client side, but I recognize that there's this gap on the builder side, right? I know that myself, I would go to a lot of the industry events. So in Toronto, we have, um, you know, build.ca. So the build, um, uh, building industry land development, I believe, um, company, so, or association. So, you know, they have these events where there's 40 to 50 builders in a room. And, you know, it was all about sharing best practices and talking and all of that. But, you know, the reality is, is that in this industry, the community is hard to come by. And I think that as someone that was a, you know, construction professional running a company, you know, it was hard for me to really shoot the breeze, so to speak, with another business owner in an open and honest way because we were all, comp- you know, competing. And so, you know, I kind of got to this crossroads about 18 months ago or so, and I decided that the path for me was really about affecting, casting a wider net, helping these construction business owners of all different walks. You know, I work with people that are up to 10 million and people that are just starting out and everyone's got unique challenges to them. And I've seen so many of them. I've gone through so many of them. And so I thought, you know, if I can give back in a way to the community and help, build that community, help build the capability for learning amongst our peers kind of thing, which is really what I feel is is missing in this industry. And, and I love that, you know, people like yourself are running this podcast and so many people are starting to do this and really share best practices. And I think it's so important. I think we are better than the individual kind of thing. We're much stronger together than we are apart. So, you know, it was really about casting a wider net just kind of recognizing that it was time for a shift in working from the client side to kind of that builder side. And, you know, I, I won't lie, getting older has something to do with it. You know, your perspectives start to change a little bit about what's important and what type of, I don't want to call it a legacy or anything like that, but you know, that those words start getting bounced around in your mind. Like, what am I doing each day to, to make, you know, people around me in the world a bit of a better place kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I get it. I get it. I think about that all the time. Like I've started to think about my life in blocks, you know, if, if I'm going to dedicate the next five to 10 years on this podcast or within a company or whatever it is, what do I want to learn? What do I want to take away from that? And what do I want to leave behind for others in doing that? And that's, that's kind of what I've been thinking about that's helped me formulate a lot of decisions as well. But one thing you, you touched on in there was the construction community is hard to come by. And do you believe that that is because a lot of us still hold so many things close to our chest because we're scared to give away our quote-unquote industry secrets? And that naturally forces us each into our own lane. There's a lack of sharing uh, information amongst others because everybody thinks they have this proprietary blend for how they attract clients and build homes and, you know, don't steal my, my way, or, you know, I'm going to lose out. And how do you feel about that? And is that what you think, where you think it comes from?
0: Yeah. I mean, really, when you look at the world, we're one of the only Mm -hmm. industries that doesn't really share a lot of best practice, right? Like, you know, sides from, maybe someone actually building a proprietary uh, product or something like that. Um, But aside from that, like, yeah, absolutely. Cards are held close to everyone's chest. Everyone kind of use each other as competition in the, you know, in the region that they're in. And, you know, it's unfortunate because the truth is, is that there are examples out there where, you know, sharing best practice actually helps companies, you know, accelerate. And, you know, I think it's also important to note that as unique as we are as individuals, it's as unique as the clients contacting us. So what I mean by that is that not every client that contacts you is an ideal fit for your business, but they might be an ideal business or fit for another business that you know that might be in your sort of network or community. And there's lots of examples I know where sharing best practices really, you know, helped business owners to see different perspectives, allow them to succeed in their business at no detriment to the person that's, you know, two miles down the road from them kind of thing. So, And I I really hope that it continues to go this way. I mean, the trade shows are great. All of the social media, social media has obviously become a huge thing. And a lot of construction companies are taking note of it and, you know, being active on it. Um, And, you know, uh, just as one small example, I know that a lot of general contractors now meet most of their trades on social media. And likely on Instagram, for example, you know, I, I just see it every day. And so many people that I know in the building industry, I'll ask them where they found this person. And it's not just you say Toronto or even Canada, I'll ask in the United States and same thing. They, they meet them on Instagram. So I just think that there's, there's a need for this. I think that, The most important thing I would say about this is that there is more than enough work to go around for everybody and that, you know, sharing best practice is a way for all of us to kind of contribute to this sort of knowledge pool, so to speak. And it also, you know, the different perspective I'll bring, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later on the podcast is it actually helps to shape the industry the way that you want it to be. Because by sharing the best practice about what you should and shouldn't do, you're actually helping to train other builders that may be, you know, we always talk about the book of authority, right? Are you on page one? Are you on page 10, page 300, page 400? Like, where are you in the journey? It's the same thing for a construction business. If you're just new into the business, you know, look, you don't know what you don't know. That's the reality. And I don't mean that in a, in a, you know, an arrogant way or anything like that, but I didn't know what I didn't know when I started in the business either. And I lost tons of money. So if someone ahead of you can kind of tell you, Hey, this is how you should be doing it. It's going to help both of you, right? There's that reciprocal type of, um, kind of giving there that that's really just going to help the industry at in all. And ultimately it's going to help protect clients as well, because they're not going to get into situations where contractors underbid work because they just didn't know. And a client heard the number they wanted to hear. And so they went with that person sort of thing. So I think there's lots of right. like upsides to all of this.
1: So when, when we talk about construction consulting, your company here, mm-hmm. what do you think your, your, Key differentiator is as a consultant uh, because I'm starting to see a lot of consulting companies pop up, and I would just like to know kind of what your process likes when you start working with a new client and how you're different, uh, so to speak. Yeah,
0: I think the the number one thing I'll say is that you know there's this concept of what we call like a master builder and um, the idea that you know, for instance, for myself, I could go if you called me up and said, "Hey, Brian, we're behind on this framing project." I know you're not really into building anymore, but do you think you could come help me and frame this roof? I could go up there as your lead hand and frame that roof for you kind of thing. And I think that's the, one of the biggest differentiators I bring to this is that I've been on every, I've done every single position inside of a residential building company, you know, started as a labor and worked my way right up to general manager with no stops and like with no gaps in between kind of thing. And so you know, while I'm up there on the roof though, you can give me your laptop and say, Hey, can you give me some pointers on your website, on my website rather, you know, this is how I can walk you through how a sales script should go on a phone or in person and all of that. So, you know, I do have a dynamic range, but really I think the key differentiator is that, you know, I've just done this. And, you know, it's what my clients tell me is that the reason that they decide to hire me is mainly because as you said, there's lots of consultants kind of popping up there, but because I've physically been doing this job for 20 plus years, you know, that, that experience I bring is just, it's something that they connect with.
1: Yeah, I could see that. It's how it's more niche and direct. Uh, A lot of the consulting companies I know have basically put together best practices that work in most companies and tailored it towards home services or construction. But it's it's a lot different. It's one thing to say, you know, here's how an effective sales plan works. But if you've never delivered a sales plan to a homeowner when you're fighting over a tender for five people bidding on a single family home or something, you're not going to have that. That feeling that you you know from experience, I've lost so many of these tenders or I've won so many, and here's why, and here's what I've experienced, and here's what happened to me. It's a little different than just saying here's the five steps. It's like here's the five steps, and then here's the emotional side of it and the physical side that you need to portray because I've been there before. So that that's fantastic. And I, I remember what I was gonna say when you're talking about you don't know what you don't know. I think that's a lot mm-hmm. a big reason why people start businesses. Cause if you knew <laughs> some of the shit you're gonna have to go through and how hard it could be, you probably wouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, for sure. If I knew half be- of what I knew. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean, look, hindsight is always 2020. There's no question about it. So
1: yeah, absolutely. So when somebody comes to you, or when you reach out to a client, and you start that interaction, yeah. and you're, you're going in for the first time, and I, I'm assuming you're going to dissect them either as an individual or a business, what does that process look like when you first onboard a client to start to uncover what position they're at in their company?
0: Yeah, I mean first and foremost I'll say that, you know, for me I I kind of go through a couple steps at the beginning just to make sure that we're a good fit to work together. You know, it's it's uh it's all great to sign up clients, but the truth is unless, you know, the the business owner themselves is willing to commit to, you know, it's good that you just mentioned that about, you know, person like dissecting them personally and as a business, because they're interconnected. Regardless of the size of the company, the business owner is the one that sets the tone for the business, whether you're a $10 million company, or you just started and you're doing your first $10,000, you know, project. So it's important that I kind of get a good read and make sure that we're a good fit to work together. And so really the first part of it is kind of, you know, me learning about you. And I have different ways to do it. As I said, I'm kind of like you know, everything's got a box for me, right? I've got a, I've got a checklist or a form or something for every aspect of this. I leave no stone unturned. And so, but really big picture, it's kind of evaluating, understanding where people are at and then understanding what their goals are. And a lot of the times I hear goals that I think they can shoot a bit higher for. I'll tell people that and I'll say, look, I think you can do better than this. And that's kind of where coming back to the differentiator, that's where because I've been there, I kind of know what's realistic and what's not realistic. If someone says to me, hey, I want to be at $10 million next year, and they just started their business, I'll say it's absolutely possible, but you're crazy for wanting to do that. Because what your day is like right now, what your day will be like 12 months from now, are wildly different if you even make it that far kind of thing. So, but yeah, basically from the onboarding procedure, it's really um, when clients do decide to kind of sign up, we go through the kind of a bit of a learning phase so I can really unpack and understand exactly where you're at. And here's a little insider tip I'll give you is that it's much like I talk about interviewing candidates for your construction business. You know, I ask a lot of strange questions. And the reason I do that is because I kind of want to see what people's reactions are. I want to understand their their personality a little bit because it helps me as a coach to better sort of match um the delivery of my offering to who they are as people how they learn how they process and it's just little things that i've learned over the years through the sales process of selling clients that you know you kind of pick up on when you start to work with you know construction business owners now
1: yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You you do have to adapt, and like we just mentioned with uh, some of the other consulting systems out there, it's it's one thing to just have a system; it's another to be able to deliver it in the way that somebody's going to learn it. And we know that with education now, you know, kids learn at different speeds, and it, that doesn't change when you become an adult. You have a different way of consuming and and processing information. And uh, I like that you do that, and I think that's that's fantastic. So now now that we know uh, a bunch about who you are and and your company and all the consulting you do. I'm very excited to jump into this next sort of portion of the episode, which is some takeaway actionable tools that some people can deploy into their businesses. And if anybody's listening, the the place I'm going with this first question that I want to ask is in relation to thinking about starting a company. So, Brian, what I want to ask you is, If you're driving down the highway, you're driving down the 401 right now, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, next year, I'm going to start my residential company. You've got, let's say, six, eight months, and you're going to start formulating a bit of a framework to get that business off the ground. And besides all of the insurance and all that good stuff you need just to operate a business, I'm talking like tools and things you need to think about from uh, a staffing and a revenue and, and a planning standpoint. To uh, like starting a shop for the first time, where do you think somebody should start and what areas should they focus on developing systems for to start to really get the foundation set correctly before they just start, you know, crushing sales and, and putting houses up?
0: <laughs> yeah, great question. I mean, it's there's so many different directions I could take this, but I think what I would really say to people is make sure that you're super committed to doing this. You know, we say in the world that the ideas are great, but action is everything. And, you know, if you just kind of jump in, as you said, and start building houses and start taking contracts without really understanding much about the business, you're going to learn things a very hard way. And I know this from personal experience. So as I always say, life is too short to learn from your own mistakes. So uh, if you can learn from mine and other consultants out there, then, then please do. So, and the second point I'll say is, you know, again, you don't know what you don't know. And it's really hard to accept that because I think as when I was in my early 20s and I started a construction business, I thought I was invincible. I thought I knew everything and I would figure it out. And I've always been kind of a do it yourself type of person. So just understanding that it's okay to ask for help first and foremost, and that you can't do it alone. And so it's really important. So it dovetails into a few of the points that I've got here. So, big picture for a second when you start a business, I have a friend and a colleague, I'm in a mastermind with him. His name's Dave Sullivan. He runs another podcast and uh, he always talks about the three-legged stool. And he always says, you have to, you know, sell work, you have to perform work and you got to keep score. And, and it's no different for any consultant to tell you that these are, you know, some of the three key areas that you got to focus on when you're a new business. The problem with that formula though, is that the keeping score part is at the end. And that's kind of how this industry operates. In other words, you go and you sell a project, you do it, and then you kind of realize what's left in your bank account kind of thing. And so like I opened this podcast with, it's really important that you understand what it takes to be profitable from the beginning, because every single project should be profitable. You shouldn't be in the hole in your first or second year um, because each job should be making you money. Now, if you had to do Say a big capital investment like machinery or something like that, if you're maybe in a landscaping business or something like that, then that's a different scenario. Um, but each project should still be making you money, you know. And and I think the biggest thing that that biggest takeaway here is to understand that you really need to focus on getting your finances in check before you really start to pour fuel on it with the sales side of it. And the finances, it also, if I unpack that a little bit further. It's also about understanding your own personal finances ahead of your business's finances. Because I think, you know, especially as a single owner operator, when people start a construction business, your personal finances are fully entrenched usually into your businesses. That's usually how it kind of operates. All the behaviors that you have with your own personal finances are going to telegraph through into your construction business unless you actually correct them or just become aware of them. And so I always say, you know you can't have a head in the sand approaches to or a head in the sand approach to your company finances. In other words, the same sort of thing has to apply to your personal life as well. So you have to really focus on getting that. It's really a great idea to get a bookkeeper if you can get somebody that has you know construction experience. It's really important to do that just because there are so many things that you can kind of get stuck on really early on in a business. And one of those simple examples would be, and not making sure that you're invoicing regularly. It's a simple thing and it sounds obvious, but as people get busy and they're single owner operators, construction companies, they forget, they don't forget to invoice. They literally, it gets pushed off their plate and then they're, they're starved for cash Mm -hmm. and it creates this perpetual cycle that people go in, kind of like a washing machine goes around and around and around and you just keep going around these cycles and it just starts to spiral out of control. So hiring a bookkeeper is really important. Along with that, you want to implement a really simple job costing system. And, you know, that's something that's for people driving down the 401, thinking about starting a construction business that don't know anything about accounting, that's definitely feels like next level kind of stuff. But the truth is, is that um, there are resources out there to help you kind of do that. The, the next thing I'll say is um, I, would, I tell all my clients, you're going to have to get comfortable with saying no. You're going to have to understand once you've got your finances set up and you understand what your overhead is, what your expenses are going to be, what amount of money you want to take home and what amount of money your business should take home after each single job, you have to get comfortable with saying no to the projects that don't allow for that. And that's probably one of the hardest transformations that any business owner really has to face, whether you've been in the business for 20 years or you're literally driving down the highway and about to start one. But being able to say no is so, so critical. And, you know, the the last point I'll say is that you know, we constantly have to be evaluating the data. That's why I talked about getting those finances set up. I always say that the numbers are the most honest thing in your construction business because they're in- incapable of embellishment or exaggeration. They will always tell you the truth. And so it's important that you have the ability to really underst- or capture that information and then be able to evaluate
1: that data. Very, very cool. So one of the other things that I wanted to ask you in regards to starting a business is obviously there's a million models and it's so dependent on how you want to run your business. But if let's say you're a carpenter, for example, and you want to start a carpentry company, whether, whether you're framing or you're renovating or whatever the case is, who do you think your first staff member should be? Do you think that it should be somebody to handle the admin side or do you think it should be field staff or maybe a combination thereof? Yeah,
0: great question. And, you know, it's a complicated answer because, you know, I think every you you kind of introed it that there are different types of construction businesses out there. So whether you're going to be more of a specialized trade company, say like landscaping or painting or roofing or something like that versus say residential renovations or custom new home builder. So it's going to vary for sure. Ultimately, I think that If we're looking at who is the first sort of hire, single owner operator, it's typically someone that can help you perform the work. And that's gonna allow you to all of a sudden free up maybe 30% of your time to do the things that are working on your business. So that might be sending out that invoice that I just talked about a moment ago, or making sure that we've got that proposal out or that estimate out to a client that we promised it to, or what have you. So I think from a single owner operator perspective, it's that person that can help you sort of perform the work. If you are maybe say in a project management, you know, type of operation, like that's kind of the service that you're offering as opposed to the physical building kind of thing, um, then it's definitely on the admin side, right? That's where you're going to need somebody to help you, you know, manage those project management tools like purchasers and change orders and RFPs and all those sorts of things. So, and then in a specialty trade business, you know, to be honest with you, it's really going to range based on the type of operation that you have. But one thing I will say is that no one is immune from needing cash in a construction business. And so that's usually one of the, the heavy drivers in terms of can this person be a lever for me to make more money? So in the single owner operator scenario, that person's helping you perform. So you're now being able to do, you know, I always used to say that sometimes when you get a second person to help you with something, you can get three times the amount of work done kind of thing uh, versus when you're trying to build something by yourself. Like I framed an entire garage by myself, roof and everything, but I had to go up and down the ladder every single time to get the next piece of wood kind of thing uh, versus if you had somebody there by yeah. them passing it to you, it's probably way more than three times faster. So that's kind of the message there.
1: Yeah, that t- totally makes sense. So that that's definitely some good points you left behind for what you need to look at in your your first few few months of business. And like we said, this is obviously very highly dependent. So it's not like you can really go after one or the other. And as you mentioned, one person becomes overhead, one person becomes potential revenue and profit, and you can potentially leave them alone and leave a bit early and get some stuff done. And it brings back some memories for, for me, for sure, when <laughs> I had my business. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the things that you you mentioned to me was a term called internal digestion. And I was hoping that you could deconstruct that, that definition for us? And what are some of the fundamental systems that one could put in place to mitigate internal digestion?
0: Yeah. So this comes from uh, David Packard, the late David Packard, who's uh, Hewlett and Packard. And uh, he talked about this and he said that you know companies rarely die from external variables. They mostly die from in- internal digestion. So what that means is as companies grow and they start to scale, um, by not having, and it's a great question that you ask, what systems should you have in place? By not having proper systems in place, things can really get out of control. The other side to this too is from the human component of it, right? So as we talked about, the residential construction business is all relationship-based, and it's no different with the employees and the subtrades and the vendors that you work with in your construction business, making sure that you've built a culture where people want to go to work each day. They want to go to your job site. They walk into your job site and they say, this is a X you know, company incorporated job site. And I'm so happy to be here because XYZ kind of thing. And if it's your employees, they don't feel um, that there's this, you know, divide between say the office or the upper management and the, the job site kind of thing. And I think there's a lot of that out there. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen quite a bit of it in my time as well. So, you know, internal digestion can take on a lot of different forms. And, you know, some of the most toxic forms that it takes is, is on that culture side. When you start to get to those layers of middle management, right. In these companies where you have, you know, there's, there's just kind of processes and things that people have to go through, you know, without clients getting the result that they need. And so from a systems perspective, one of the most important things I tell people is, recruiting and retention is probably paramount here. And the reason I say that is a culture can easily implode a company. It it can happen very quickly as well. And so one of the most important things is to hire slowly and have an absolute defined process for how you do this. And there's, I could talk for hours on this (laughs) topic, to be honest with you, because there's a lot of systems that people should have in place for this. And then the second and probably even more important point to that is the retention side of it, right? Is that, you know, your job as an employer starts when someone, you know, onboards with you and that, that's where the journey begins and it never ends kind of thing. You're constantly laying out a roadmap for them and helping people, you know, succeed in the roles that they're in. That's how you stay away from internal digestion on that sort of culture front. And then there's two other points that I would say that, or two other sort of systems I keep coming back to the finances, no surprise here. It's so important that you have a handle on your numbers because if you don't know your numbers, you, know, you have no idea if you're making money. And as a company scales and grows, your overhead changes. And it's so important that you understand that and you can recognize that, not at the end of a year, but in real time. And then having a well-oiled sales process, making sure that your mission that you started the company with dovetails into that sales process. When a business owner you know, becomes disassociated with the sales process, which happens in construction businesses that start to you know, scale past six or seven or $8 million a year, they start to be less involved maybe in that. They might be there for initial touch with the client kind of thing, but now you've got to kind of got sales teams. And then you know the people on the front lines. You know your carpenters, your laborers, your you know your your subtrades and all of that. You want them to represent your brand the way that you started it, kind of thing. And so I think it's really important to have that well-oiled sales process, making sure that conversation stays consistent, that theme stays consistent throughout the life cycle of a client. And then you know the last point I'll say for especially this is for all the construction business owners listening is you need to have a willing a willingness to listen far more than you talk at any level. It doesn't matter how big your company is or how small it is. Listen to the people that are beside you because they will often reflect for you the things that you don't want to hear, but are critical for you to listen to. And I speak from personal experience here.
1: Yeah. Awesome. So one of the other things that that comes to mind with all this is is we talk a lot about revenue and we're going to get into a bit of a tutorial on numbers to clarify a few things, because there's definitely some confusion, I, I think, still amongst the construction industry. But what I wanted to ask you was around the mindset when it comes to growth, because the reality is most people start businesses because they want to make money, and a lot of people equate money to uh, revenue, and they equate uh, they equate the size of their company based on crew size. You see this on Instagram so often, where a guy will post a picture of their team. Hey, we just took company photos. We've got ten guys now. Oh, well, that's fantastic! What's your bottom line like? So, right. what I wanted to know was, how do you think about training somebody out of the, the mindset, not, not that you want to train them out of the growth mindset, but getting them to shift their focus on not how much revenue can we produce next year, but how much profit we can bring into the business. Because I think a lot of people get hung up on the numbers and they want to say, oh, I'm a million dollar business or I'm a $10 million business. And they, they what people should be saying or what they should reframe it to, in my opinion, is we made a million dollars in profit. Not a million dollars in revenue. You could do a million dollars in revenue, and have nothing to reinvest for the next year. So I'm curious how you deal with that mindset and the ego that comes with wanting to have this big company with a hundred guys doing a hundred million dollars, and they've got their sign on every every lawn in in their city.
0: It's a great question, and you know I'm happy that we we get a chance to talk about mindset because there's there's so many things here that are so powerful. But here's what I'll say: is that I look at it from the perspective of Your life. And and what I mean by that is, I ask every construction business owner that I work with, what do you want your days to look like? You know, right now, what are they like? What do you want them to look like 12 months from now? Kind of thing. And 24 months, 36, et cetera, et cetera. But the point I'm trying to drive at is that, you know, growth isn't always about financial terms. It's not always about having a bigger crew size or anything like that, kind of like what you're talking about. For me, it's about understanding what type of life do you want to live? There's so many construction businesses that just, Bang nails into wood for 30 years and then close their doors because they never had any sort of succession planning. And they basically just were always running in this cycle. And so I think it's really important to stop for a second and ask yourself, what kind of life are you building for yourself, for your family, and for the people that work with you? Um, Notice how I said with you, not for you. And so I think it's really, really critical. When I get people that say to me, you know, I had a prospect that I was on the call with, and, you know, this gentleman wants to scale his business to like multi eight figures quickly. And he's at seven figures right now. So that's, that's hard to do. And it's not that it's not achievable, but you know, he's basically wanted to get to a number that's getting close to nine figures kind of thing. And the reality of that is his life at that scale is going to look far different than what it is right now. Again, if he even makes it to that scale kind of thing. So I think, I think that's how I t- t- tend to kind of diffuse some of that mindset and growth strategy is that it's, you know, to your point, and it's exactly why I opened up this podcast with it, that if you're not profitable where you're at right now, scaling is not the answer for you. Growth is always not is not always the answer to solving your financial problems because clearly there's something wrong at that $1 million scale kind of thing or 100 thousand dollar scale so yeah it's it's just understanding that we you know we can't start sprinting right out of the gate kind of thing we've got to get there
1: yeah you have to have a, a solid foundation before you start putting more stuff on top of it and uh, i know it's a pun but it's true it's 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 like building a house if, if there's no solid foundation you just try and s- build 10 stories on top it's going to fall over really quick you got it and that 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 brings me to to a, a different Kind of a different segue that I want to take here. When you're actually diving into the numbers, and I I know we haven't quite gotten there yet, but I think we will now. I wanted to know when when you're going through a business's numbers or you're getting them to to do their their analysis on their revenues and their profits, where do you find that most of the holes are in the boat? Where's the money falling out of the the low-hanging fruit that people can potentially go in and look at their profit and loss sheet or their, their balance sheet and say, these are the things that I need to focus on because I'm pouring extra money in here or extra money's coming out that isn't really having an impact on the growth of my business or the structure. Where where are you seeing those currently, the holes in the boat?
0: You know, the, the truth is, in a lot of businesses, there's holes everywhere. But I think the last part you just said is most important part. Whether it's the sales process or the finances, you know, it's about having a structure. It's about having a process. It's about having a system. And I think that ultimately there's a lot of components that are broken in construction businesses out there when it comes to their finances. They don't know their overhead. Um, I think the number one question I get asked is how much should I charge on top of my cost of goods sold? So cost of goods sold being, you know, lumber or labor or, you know, equipment rentals, things like that. Anything that's, you know, sort of for the job costing. And that's probably, as I said, the number one, you know, question I get asked, which tells me that people don't know their overhead. They don't know what their expenses are. It's not so much that they might be living beyond their means in their construction business. It's just that they're not aware of it kind of thing. And the dovetail of that is then on the estimating side that they're just not charging the right price to be profitable. And that's, you know, if I can really distill it down, that's as simple as it is for me, right? It's just understanding what your costs are as a construction business to perform that project not what price you have to sell a job at to compete with Joe's renovations. That's an apologies to anybody that's named Joe. I don't mean to paint him into a corner, but um, just as a comparison, (laughs) you know, um, you know, you don't have to just find a number to compete with somebody. What you really want to do is just understand what you as a company, it's going to cost you to be able to perform that project. And so I think everyone can kind of look at if they're not familiar with it, get their accountant to give them, give you your profit and loss sheet from last year and start looking at the different line items and really start to understand what they all mean. Oftentimes when I start working with people, there's cleanup to do on their project uh, profit and loss statements because there's things that are miscategorized. So they're getting an imperfect view as to what it is that their company may or may not be working or uh, making, I should say, from a profit standpoint. But yeah, I right. think, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, there's just a lot of different areas, you know, definitely taking stock of your expenses and then just really looking at your estimates and saying, Hey, am I really factoring this amount in when we talk about that? So when we talk about adding overhead or profit, am I really putting it in at the right number? As chances are, you're probably not.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. one of the things that that's come across my mind, lots of times currently in the past, owning a business and just in general is, is in relation to overhead. So let's say, let's say it costs you for for easy math, $12,000 a year to float the business uh, in terms of overhead and overhead being any of the expenses that do not translate to cost of goods sold or or profit, that's stuff that's just operating in your business. And how could you cover that cost in an estimate? Because I I could see a, a few different ways of doing it, but I'm not sure what the best calculation would be to make sure that you're covering for those overhead costs when you're quoting work.
0: Yeah. And, and ultimately, look, I, I keep coming back to the same thing. We have to know our numbers. We have to know what our overhead is. So say it's $12,000 for an entire year. We have to also unpack that a little bit and ask, okay, Does that include the owner salary? Because I I guess it wouldn't because you wouldn't be making a lot of $12,000 a year plus all your expenses. So, you know, in your overhead is your owner salary. Now, a lot of owners, uh, construction business owners listening to this will say, well, my CPA tells me to take distributions because it's a cheaper way to get taxed in both countries, both Canada and the US. And that's not an untrue statement. However, it won't show up on your profit and loss statement. So that's something to really be aware of. But what we have to do is figure out what owner salary you want, whether you pay yourself in distributions or you pay yourself through, you know, the proper, proper source deductions and all of that, which I prefer you do, that has to be added to your overhead. We have to look at all of those sort of fixed and variable expenses. So not job related costs, right? Just expenses in your construction business. If you have a vehicle that you run through your construction business, if you have an office and there's rent and there's utilities and all of that, these are all overhead costs, right? So there are things that aren't, necessarily directly involved in the building of your projects kind of thing. Then we have to basically look at that and say, what is the total amount of time that we have to work in a year? And this is what we call kind of opportunity for profit. And one of the things that I talk a lot about with my clients on the change order side is that, you know, change orders should increase in percentage as you go through a project, because the cost to you as a construction business increases. And that's a very difficult topic and maybe a more complex topic that we'd have to unpack a lot further. But the idea here is that we have to look at your overhead across time. We have to understand how much volume can you actually manage with the team that you have in place kind of thing. That's going to be a factor as well. The other part that the other two parts we have to look at is we talked about it is an OCRA, right? The operating capital reserve account. And, you know, understanding that your business needs to have six months of your expenses socked away in the event of, you know, our downturn in the economy, um, you know, an unprecedented world event, um, you know, things like that, that would cost you to, you know, or put you in a situation where you couldn't miss necessarily earn revenue. And so we need to have that. And then there's also another thing that's called succession planning. And this, you know, a lot of people would say to me, well, I'm 20, I'm just starting a business. Why do I have to think about my exit strategy already? And I think the the message there is we always want to design with the end in mind. So all of these things play a factor into that. And that's how we kind of come up with what our percentage on top of our cost of goods sold, we're going to add inside of our estimates, right? So when we look at an estimate and we say, okay, I'm... you know, I looked over the fence. I think Joe's construction is charging 15% markup. I'm going to charge 15%. The truth is you have no idea if Joe is profitable at 15%. And my guess is he's probably not. So, you know, you have to figure it out for yourself what your true overheads going to be, match it to the time and make sure that you've got the proper markup on top of all those costs of goods sold so that you are a profitable construction company with every single project. We're not going to try and make more on one to pay for the other. We're going to be profitable on every single project.
1: So So that leads me to to just a clarification question if I may, and that is sure. so like we mentioned, if it's let's say it's twelve thousand dollars a year, so that's a thousand dollars a month, and let's say the project is one month in time length, then you would be trying to make back that thousand dollars in overhead in that month and is that on uh is is that dependent on the amount of projects too because your overhead per project could technically go down if you have multiple projects running simultaneously you wouldn't have to charge a thousand dollars a client although it would be nice but you could maybe get away with a smaller overhead to to compensate for that fact and still be able to cover your operating costs and be profitable would that make sense
0: so, yeah, this is, this is a, I want to answer the second part first is that as your company grows in revenue, your overhead actually increases, but your percentage goes down, right? Because it's a smaller percentage of the gross revenue kind of thing. So that's just one clarification I want to make. That's $12,000. There's a complex way that we kind of look at this, but from a very simple perspective, if you look at your overhead, we've got to add in the owner salary. We've got to add in the net profit for the business. We've got to add in what is the growth strategy for the next 12, 24, 36 months kind of thing that has to be a factor into it. That's all three of those and more are going to kind of combine to what your markup should be, right? That's the percentage that we're going to charge on top of every dollar sold in your construction business and then each portion of that dollar. So if you had one dollar you know, that you bring in in revenue, a percentage of each one is going to go into a specific area for your construction business to make sure that you're profitable.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, got it. And one of the other terms, just for further clarification, because I know that not everybody gets this one right. Can you define for us gross profit versus net profit?
0: Yeah, for sure. It'll be very simple for me. Now, there's two different ways to kind of look at this. Uh, For anybody here that is uh, on the accounting side, we have what's called the gap method, which is the generally accepted accounting principles. And then um, a lot of consultants, uh, myself included, follow the profit-first model. Uh, Michael mccallowitz I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name properly. You know, he, you know, he wrote a book about it. There's also like The Wealthy Barber and, and that kind of idea. And so the fundamental difference between those two I'll just make is that, you know, the typical sort of gap method is that you have your revenue minus your expenses equals your profit. And in the profit first, we want to take the profit first, right? So we're going to say, you know, it's our gross revenue minus profit equals expenses kind of thing. And so when we look at gross profit, you know, the reason I'm giving you those clarifications is that we look at it a little bit differently between those two different models. So in the gap method, it's essentially what is your top line revenue minus your job cost or your cost of goods sold. Now there's different ways that people define cost of goods sold and, and different ways that they de- define job costs. But essentially the way that in the gap method, it's gross revenue minus everything that's involved in producing that project. So it's lumber, it's staff, um, you know, hours, et cetera, et cetera. It's everything that's involved, subtrades, stuff like that. And then, you know, a net profit. And there's two divisions of this, but really to keep it simple, the net profit is kind of what's left for the business after everyone's taken their piece of the pie, including the owner. And one of the biggest things that we see, and I just wrote about this, is that I see business owners taking their salary out of the net profit, which is the absolute wrong thing that you can do. Your company needs to be paying you as an owner, and it also needs to be generating a net profit. So again, that's the amount of money that's left after everyone's taken a slice of the pie.
1: Yeah, if you're just pulling from that rainy day fund to pay yourself all the time, it's not painting a true picture. And then if you want to replace yourself and that person has to go on salary, then if you're not charging for it, you can't afford to put them in that place and then you get stuck in the trap. You got it, 100%. That's it. So now when it comes to to profit, we get into estimating. And I, I know that you've written a lot about uh, if estimates should be free or not. So I was hoping that you could Dive into your thoughts and reasons why estimates should or should not be free. Yeah.
0: And, you know, this is a hot topic. It's, as you said, it's something I've been writing about recently a lot. And, you know, it's something that I saw a long time ago. I kind of just didn't understand. I've never really understood why the free estimate thing exists. And the best reason I can come up with is that a very long time ago, probably thousands of years ago, someone decided that they were going to get a competitive advantage over somebody beside them and say, hey, we'll do it for, I'll do it for, you know, one goat or whatever it was kind of thing. And so, unfortunately, <laughs> I wish that we had the opportunity to go back and, you know, change history. Uh, I'm not sure what butterfly effect that would have, but uh, I wish we could go back because I think the free estimate thing is something that is something, I think it's something that everybody struggles with. I know it's a hot topic because everyone's told me it, that it is a hot topic. I struggled with it myself as well. And, you know, I'll give people, you know, a few core reasons why I fundamentally believe you should never be doing a free estimate. The first and foremost is it's never an apples to apples comparison. And, you know, at the beginning, especially when we talk about a residential renovation project, doesn't really matter how big it is. It could be a bathroom, a kitchen, or it could be, you know, some of the projects that I've worked on, which are full scale, you know, gut redos where we're doing additions and underpinning and all of that sort of thing you know, there's, there's just never enough information at any of those levels at the beginning of a client's journey. They just don't know enough. And they're also not the construction experts. So it's impossible for them to detail a scope of work that's going to be inclusive of everything that's going to be a reality in their project. And ultimately what they're doing is kind of price shopping. And so, you know, that leads into my second point, which is you're now being judged on a piece of paper. You're not being judged for the person that you are, the unique qualifications and skills that you bring to your construction business and to each client that you work with, to the, you know, the integrity that you have as a human, you know, you're basically just a number on a page. And unfortunately, what clients will do is they'll take that number, they'll go to the next person, then they'll go to the next person. And this is just a human behavior is that they'll keep going until they hear the number that they want to hear. And that's typically who they'll hire. And so, you know, it's, you know, a dovetail into the third point, which is that people won't value what they don't pay for. And when you give them a free number, they're literally just going to take that, as I mentioned, and use it to shop around your price, to use any information that you give them, any, you know, tips or anything like that to sound intelligent to the next builder that they bring into the room and say, well, you know, we think that we should do X, Y, Z. And then the builder will think, oh, wow, these people are a little bit educated. Okay, great. And, and the big point here is that, you know, I always say to this, uh, I always say this is that you have to focus on the relationship first and not the bid. And so the, the way that the free estimate world is type is kind of set up is that it's focusing on the bid first. And because once you give that, and once you give, once you give that number, it's, you know, again, it's something that people will just shop around and, you know, they're just not going to value it. And, you know, ultimately it doesn't set you up for success and actually building a relationship that then you can basically help to educate that client about what the true cost of an estimate or their project is going to be. Um, Because the truth is none of us really know at the beginning of a project what the ultimate cost is going to be until we get down the path. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about it is that, you know, estimating is seen as this outlier as a, of a job cost, in other words, people don't recognize that it's actually part of like a construction cost for their project. That it's treated as something that should be free. It's I've heard from clients over the years. It's the cost of doing business, and which gets me obviously started into a whole rant about why it's really not the cost of doing <laughs> business. Of course, but the point is, is that it's an interesting thing. If you think about it for a second, it's treated as an outlier. It's treated as something that's just, you know, you should be doing this for free. Because that's how it's always been kind of thing. And, and it's really my message to everybody is it is a true job cost, no different than any carpenter on your project or any lumber that you buy for someone's house.
1: You know what? That's interesting. It makes me think because obviously we're talking residential here. And if you're if you're a multi multi million dollar construction company that's bidding on a lot of commercial work and you're playing a, a percentages game where you have to get 500 estimates out every six months to to keep your company afloat, that's a different story. You're deploying a team. But one of the things that I've I've talked about with a number of people is the fact that it's very hard to find. Estimators uh, to fill positions within companies—it's kind of a lost art, and maybe part of the reason is because you're right. Like, it doesn't get enough attention. It's an outlier. People don't see it as a viable career choice. Maybe in residential, it's—it may not be the you know as big a career as it could be for a major builder that's pricing a ton of work and complicated jobs. Uh, Like some of the stuff that that I'm working on requires teams to to put estimates together. And it's a little bit different, but it it makes me wonder if, if there's an optics issue with estimating and you know, that's just another rabbit hole that we could disappear down and try and get people to, to promote. But it seems to me like when I go on LinkedIn everybody's looking for estimators, whether it's residential companies, commercial companies, large, small scale. It's just kind of a lost art that people don't realize is a, is a career path and, and an art and does take time. It does cost money to put together complicated bids, especially like you mentioned, if you don't have all the specs, you know, how many times has somebody come to you and drawn a house on the back of a napkin and said, what's it going to cost for me to build this? And you just, you know, a lot of people will just say, oh, 30K, let's, let's sign it up and get going because I don't have work next month. And that's a terrible cycle. Yeah.
0: A lot of great points you brought up in there. And I think, yeah, it's definitely the commercial and residential worlds are very different in the viewpoint here. And I don't think that there's any construction business owner listening to this that would say, I enjoy doing free estimates. Um, Because ultimately, if you're playing playing the numbers game at the residential scale, regardless of the size of your business, it's just, you know that there's just a lot of money going out the window kind of thing. And I think ultimately, yeah, on the commercial side, one of the big things is that they have, as you mentioned, they have teams, right? You've got teams of people doing this. They're dissecting the plans. It is more of an apples to apples comparison at that scale. Now I'm only speaking from my presumptions here because I've never spent time at that scale, um, working in it, but I do know that there, you know, again, there is a process for going through that, that those plans are dissected. And, um, you know, I have, lots of friends that are architects and, you know, that work on those types of projects. And I know there's just more dollars there. And so it allows there to be more positions to fill there in a small or even slightly medium-sized residential building company. You know, we just don't have those types of resources to do it. And so, you know, you're you're bidding against somebody else and you have no idea what's, you know, do they have an estimator or was it literally someone like you just said, says, okay, well, I think this is going to be you know, $100,000, let's get it signed up because we don't have work next week kind of thing. We have to keep the boys busy, which is a line we also always hear. Ultimately, you're competing <laughs> against that because, you know, so so the big point there, is, I think between the two sort of sectors, commercial and residential, is that in the commercial side, you know, and if I'm speaking at a turn, you know, anybody reach out to me on LinkedIn, let me know. But my assumption is that they do have, you know, that sort of process. They have people in those positions and uh, whether or not they can fill those or not. But, um, you know, they're going through more of a process than, you know, on the residential side. I just see it day in, day out. I ask people how they're estimating and when you really unpack it, it's, it's you know, it's not a well-developed system yet.
1: and And that's really one of the biggest differences, I would say yeah absolutely. I mean I'm in that space right now, and you're right there there is a process because when when you start talking contracts and and big contracts with big players and lots of stakeholders, there's more at stake when you miss things there's there's more there's more opportunity for claim, there's more opportunity for litigation and it, it's a it's a completely different animal uh, but that's not to say. That when you get started on a job, no matter what industry you're in and what size of business you're in, if you're getting asked the price changes on a regular basis, there's no reason that you can't go in and capture the cost of your time to investigate site, look around and formulate that plan and reach out to suppliers and put that number together. That by all means, in my opinion, needs to be included. That is time spent by you to deliver this person something they've asked for. It's no different than delivering the house they asked for. It's part of your service and it should be, you should charge for that. And they're not maybe going to see it up front. It, it, sometimes it's buffered into the cost of delivering a change, but it's it, extremely disruptive. I've said this before. It. it uh interrupts your workflow, it could extend the project schedule, it could push other jobs back. And you have to analyze that risk and say, how can we accommodate this one specific change into this project, but not lose sight that it could have horrendous effects on on productivity and morale. And, you know, you think you are just done something, you got to go back and add stuff in, and it, it can be a detriment. So I think if anybody's listening, estimates... What, the initial estimate is one thing, but the change order, which again is a form of estimate that you're delivering, make sure you're capturing everything that is, is getting put into that uh, commercially and residentially. It just, you you have to, it's part of the job. It's part of what these people are paying you to do for them. They're asking you to price it. That's part of your service.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it just comes down to having a process, whether we're talking finances, sales, estimating, Um, You know, you need to have a process for this. And, you know, at the top of the podcast, we talked about something where I said, you know, you have to get kind of get comfortable saying no. And it's really important in the residential space that you are able, you have a process for your estimating, you know, your numbers. So you know what percentage you're going to add on top of those costs of goods sold and that you're able to say no when it's not the right fit for you and your company.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, this is this is the the time in the podcast where I'd like to transition into more rapid fire and, and somewhat personal questions. But is there anything specific to what you do that you would like to speak about before we move on to wrapping up?
0: In terms of what I do, I mean, ultimately, what I'll say is that, you know, I really act as a sounding board for people. That's the two words I hear from people most often, all the clients that I work with. You know, we talked about this earlier in the podcast, that community is something that's a bit lacking in the construction space. And the majority of the business owners that work with me, they really value having somebody that they can talk to business owners, the business owner, someone that's been there, that has been in the trenches, not only just physically, but, you know, as a, as a manager running companies and, you know, understand their challenges from their, you know, sort of that really painful type of level, so to speak, because I know there's a lot of challenges in this business. And, you know, whether you decide, here's what I'll say to any construction business owner out there, you know, it's not a plug for myself, whether you decide to maybe get in touch with me or get in touch with somebody, you know, it doesn't have to be me or even a coach or consultant or something, but, you know, mentorship is something that's so important. You know, I recently hired a coach for myself because ultimately the coach needs a coach kind of thing. And, you know, look at some of the best players out there, you know, I'm a big fan of mindset and stuff like that. And so you look at the book you know, Relentless, for example. And, um, sorry, his name's escaping me right now. Um, who, who's written by, but he was, uh, Michael Jordan's coach, uh, the late Kobe Bryant's coach. Um, he was there, you know, basically their spiritual, physical, mental leader kind of thing. And he, you know, he, arguably Michael Jordan was the best basketball player of our generation. And, you know, or or of all time. And, you know, his greatness came out through a coach kind of thing. And so I think whether you hire again, whether you want to get in touch with me or another coach or consultant in the construction space, definitely, you know, you can't do it alone. And, you know, reaching out to somebody and getting some mentorship is a really, really valuable thing that anybody can do that's listening to this.
1: We're going to link to all this good stuff on, on the show notes. So uh, we'll go back. And uh, I know we're on the spot, so we don't have to think about it right now. But that, that brings me in. You mentioned a few good books here. So I was wondering if you could uh, outline a couple of the best books or podcasts or audiobooks or any sort of information that you've consumed in the last little while. It doesn't have to be business related. It could be mindset or personal that you've consumed that you think would be great for people to check out and listen to or read or, or consume for sure.
0: Yeah, I've read I've read a ton of books, you know, when you asked the mindset question earlier in this podcast, one of the things that, you know, I I thought of and um and then we we kind of moved on was just, you know, my consulting journey when I decided to sort of, you know, transition from working in a company and being my own <laughs> consultant kind of thing. That's kind of when the real sort of learning journey kind of started for me again, or restarted, I should say. And, you know, I never read a lot of books before that, but I've just consumed a ton of content in, you know, in the last sort of 18 months, because, you know, learning every day is a way that I'm able to sort of give back to the people that I work with. So some of the great books that I've read, one is called the founder's mentality for any construction business, whether you're kind of starting out or you're newer in the business, or you've been in the business for a while, the founder's mentality, uh, It's a great book that talks about sort of the three phases of, you know, when, when companies kind of start going through that internal digestion, um, and they start to, and it just helps you see some of these markers before they actually happen. Uh, it's a great perspective read for people that are growing their businesses. It's a really, really good thing of kind of what to avoid. The next one, um, this is just a stalwart in the, in the leadership world is good to great by Jim Collins. This is a book that every business owner should read. Um, it, you know, can be a bit of a push through some of the pages, but the truth is some of the concepts in there, if you can, you know, read it with an open mind, um, these are, I mean, there's, there's thousands of hours of research that's gone into this book. Um, so you can take it as absolute truth and it's just a phenomenal read. Another one that I love is, uh, recently read it. He's out your way or from where you're from. Uh, he's in Tofino on Vancouver Island. It's a company of one by Paul Jarvis. This is a great book. It, it won't speak so much to a construction business owner, but there are some key principles in there about how you run what's called a company of one inside even a large organization. In other words, how do you empower people to have that owner's mindset and you know represent your brand? Whether you've got three people working for you, you've got 30 people or 300 people, There's always a problem with dilution in a company. And I think this is a really interesting read because it helps you understand what it means to really be, you know, kind of have that owner's mentality, that owner's mindset. So I think it's a really interesting book to read. And then I just recently, uh, I'm a big Shark Tank fan Uh, for anybody out there that's uh, uh, watches Shark Tank and Damon John just put out his uh, biography. And so I just picked that up as well. And I'm about to crack into that one. So I'm excited for that one.
1: Cool, cool. I've uh, a few of those books people have recommended, but uh, a company of one I've never heard of. I'd, I'd like to check it out. I'll definitely, definitely be picking that one up. One of one of the next questions that I haven't asked too many people, but has has started to come into the back of my mind is who inspires Brian to be his best self every day? Like who who is your driving force to? to do what you do, like doing a lot of good and giving back and starting a company is, you know, it's, it's something that's hard to do alone. And I'm curious to know who inspires you to, to be your best self. And it could be a coach or a mentor or somebody that in your personal life, it it's, it's up to you. You choose.
0: Yeah. You know, I'll say that I've always been a really driven individual. I've always bitten off far more than I can chew in a lot of respects, but you know, as I've gotten older I've become wiser (laughs) about what I, what I bite off and and how much I choose to chew at any point. But, you know, I would say that, um, you know, my wife's been a great motivator for me. Um, She's someone that um, has, you know, helped to show me um, a different pathway in, in life. And, you know, something, something that, that does get me up to, you know, and drive forward, you know, and as I mentioned, I've always been very motivated and, you know, part of this is being able to prove to myself that this is something that, you know, I have a lot of experience and I have a lot of information and knowledge inside this brain that I need to get out to people to help them in their journey. And so, you know, the other part I would say is my clients, right. Is, is having my clients write me emails that 30 days ago, they were in a negative On their profit and loss. And now there's been a swing and they're now in the positive um, and they're making a profit. I
1: mean, that's
0: just, that's, that's one of, that's a huge motivator for me to keep doing what I'm doing.
1: Amazing. Love it. Shout out to the wife for, for pushing you along. Mine's the same. So it's good to have good women on your side for all, all you single guys out there.
0: (laughs) For all the married guys out there, when your wife tells you something, listen to it.
1: (laughs) Happy wife, happy life sort of thing. You got it. What about favorite quotes or, or things that come to mind that I know there's a lot of, I become maybe a little too philosophical sometimes and people tell me <laughs> to, to cool it because I seem to always have a quote for things. I was curious if you have any that bounce around your mind.
0: Yeah, I would say that uh, my favorite quote would be from uh, good old honest Abe, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the ax. And, you know, that really epitomizes who I am as an individual and the level of preparation and organization I bring to my consulting clients and that getting them set up properly before, you know, we talked about it earlier in the podcast about, you know, it starts with your finances. It does not start with sales in a construction business because you can sell work, but you're likely going to sell at the wrong price. So, you know, let's sharpen the ax. Let's understand our numbers first before we
1: start chopping down the tree or in other words, selling projects. Yeah, just to build on that, because so many things came to mind, but I think planning even something as small as uh, your day or a specific task, I see too many people that come straight to work and jump right into their inbox and become reactive the second they get there, instead of spending that 15 minutes saying, where do I need to sharpen the ax and what do I need to get done today? And how hard do I need to swing it? And that's just something that came to mind because I'm guilty of it. I'm sure a lot of people are, but whether it comes to building a business or it comes to just even planning your day as a manager somewhere, spend that first 10 to 15 minutes or the night before, like really thinking about how you're going to be most productive. And like you mentioned, where you're going to sharpen that axe and how hard you're going to swing it and lay out that plan. And you would be amazed. Like they say that everybody has the same 24 hours. Well, if you do that, I guarantee you're going to free up a bit of time. So that's just something that came to mind when you said that for me. For sure. You know we're going to start wrapping up here. So you mentioned to me that you you had a couple resources that we we're going to be able to link to for those listening that they can pull from. And I think you were talking about sort of a lessons learned manual. Can you expand on that a little bit? And then while while you're uh, going through some of this stuff and where people can find you at and where your content is, just just lay it all out for us so people know where to get in touch if they're interested in construction consulting and uh, where they can find what you're up to and and all the like you post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. So just lay out lay out all the content tech info for us and uh, what we're going to be able to link to, to give people to take away.
0: For sure. For sure. So yeah, I, I will say that, um, you know, in terms of things that I'm going to resource for people to link to. Um, so I'm passionate about not estimating for free. And it's something that I've been putting together a guide on how to stop estimating for free for people. And I think it's a really important thing that people understand. They understand the dangers of it to their construction business. And, you know, it's easy for me to sit here and say, stop estimating for free, but then, you know, how do I actually do that? And so, um, in the guide, I'm going to give you the, you know, there are more high level steps of what you can do to kind of put in place, um, to do that and to make sure that you're not, you know, finding that challenge. I'm also happy to put in a resource to, I wrote a book called the construction checklist package, which is, um, it's a. Con- a conglomeration or, collab- or um, sorry, a compilation rather of one checklist per trade discipline. So for every single step in a residential building project, there's a checklist inside of there. And so I'm happy to link to a copy of the critical path checklist. I gave these away at IBS at the International Builder Show this year in January. They were very well received to a room of over three hundred and five people, which was really exciting. So I'll be happy to link those resources beneath. Yeah, in your podcast, you know, I'll give I'll give some final thoughts and then you know, just kind of tell you where to get in touch with me. That makes sense. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And hang on a second though, you, okay, you, sure. I asked you what your favorite book. I asked you what your favorite books were. You didn't even mention your own. <laughs> <laughs> uh well, there you go. You know, anybody that works
0: with me that might hear this will know that I'm a big fan of building a story brand by Donald Miller. And the positioning in that book is exactly what I teach my clients. Make the story, make the hero of the story the client, not you, kind of thing. So by default, I will never, you know, sort of put myself in that hero sort of standpoint. So ironically enough, yeah, I didn't I didn't mention that book in the uh, when you asked for the resources. So There you go.
1: Well, it's all good. Um, We will link to it for anybody that does want to purchase it. And it sounds like an amazing resource. If you have it laid out to uh, the steps that are, are needed to take for residential build, that's awesome. So yeah, give us your final thoughts and things that people can think about and then leave us off with where people can get in touch with you and how they can reach out if they're interested in some of your services.
0: Cool. So, yeah, I'll say final thoughts. I got three. There's so many I could say here, but I'm going to I'm gonna keep it to three. So just like I opened up the podcast with, you know, the key success metric for any construction business is being profitable at whatever level you're at. Um, you know, not to fall in that trap of thinking that scale is going to fix your problems. You know, financial problems in a construction business will not resolve themselves with more volume. That's just not how it works. The second point I'm going to tell everybody, you know, and you kind of talked about this is, you know, we've, we've had this conversation when, you know, you meet a new client and they're, they're running around working 90 hours a week. And, you know, where do I even start with them kind of thing. And my message to them is very simple is that, you know, it's time that you, you take some time to work on your business because 20 years will pass in an instant. I'm not going to say it could, it actually will pass. And, you know, your employees, your trades, and let's be honest, your family um, and other people around you are going to suffer. your chaos and so it's really important that you recognize that you know oftentimes you know i always say that the you know the the business owner is in the way of their own success and so that's kind of the message here is just recognize that if you're running around going you know nuts um left right and center it's because you're setting those expectations with a client so when you go meet a client and you're gonna you know if you're still giving free estimates and you're giving them a free estimate. Don't tell them you're going to have it to them in two days. Tell them it's going to be a week or two weeks. Be realistic with the timelines that you set. As soon as you start sort of doing that and setting better expectations around your own time, you'll notice that things are going to start changing for you. And the third thing I'll say is, you know, you have to be patient. Um, You know, I see so many young businesses and not just from an age perspective, like of the owners, just new businesses they're just trying to sprint before they've even crawled kind of thing. And, you know, like we talked about a little bit earlier, if you start a construction business, you can't scale it to $10 million sustainably in one year. It's just not realistic. And, you know, sure, maybe there's a 0.1% of the population that might be able to do that. But for the most of us, that's not a realistic thing. So build that, you know, cliche, solid foundation for your construction business. You know, it's so critical, but just understand that it takes time. So work methodically, do it step-by-step, you know, build that strong foundation and footing and then in terms of how you get in touch with me, I'm everywhere, um, online. So some easy places to get me construction consulting. I just want to mention it's actually.co. I didn't, uh, I wasn't able to get .com. Unfortunately. Um, I wish I oh, could, okay. but, but <laughs> one day I will. So, um, but, uh, probably had to pay for that one and probably quite a bit, but yeah, it's construction consulting.co uh, is where you can find me online. And, um, on that website, there's a link to the construction checklist package. You can book a strategy session with me. I also have my Know Your Numbers program up there as well, um, that I'll get you to, to book a call with me. You can email me, it's brian, with a Y, at constructionconsulting.co. Um, on LinkedIn, that's, um, as you mentioned, Colin, I post a lot of content there. I essentially use LinkedIn as my blog, so I've got 32 plus articles on there, all of them very specific to the residential, renovation, and custom new home building world. Um, So go check me out there. Just search Brian Kaplan and you'll see me pop up. Instagram, uh, my handle's at constructionconsulting.co. And then of course, everyone has a Facebook business page. So you can just search Construction Consulting
1: and you will find me there. Amazing, Brian. It's been uh, it's been a wild ride getting to know you, and you've left, I think, a lot behind. And I hope that people got a lot of value out of what you had to offer. And we just scratched the surface. There's so many rabbit holes, and I really tried to stay on track. So hopefully, we can catch up for a part two in the future and and dissect a few things and and see how things have progressed for you and in your business because that's an interesting story in and of itself. And I just wanted to thank you again for uh, participating and providing all of these resources to align with the podcast and to distribute amongst uh, Canadians and Americans that are looking to grow their residential businesses and become more profitable and take the take the edge off and the stress off. And uh, it was a pleasure having you on. So thank you so much again.
0: Awesome. Colin, the pleasure was mine. I appreciate it.
1: That's a wrap. That's a wrap, everybody. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Tools of the Trade Podcast. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave us a five-star review. For show notes, blog posts, resources, and access to our newsletter, check out toolspodcast.com.